Well, hey, welcome to all of you today who are joining us online, and here we are once again, worshiping together through the lens of social distancing. You know, I'm not even sure I had even heard of the phrase social distancing before a month ago. I mean, before this whole coronavirus outbreak, it's just not something that we talked about at all. But I can tell you that we are doing the best job that we know how to do at social distancing, but I can tell you we are not taking it as far as some people. We're doing a pretty good job, but we're not taking it as far as this guy. I mean, look at this guy. Man, look at that thing he is wearing. He, he built some kind of contraption out of cardboard, I think, that wraps around. He puts it on, and it keeps everybody at a six-feet distance away from him. We're doing a pretty good job ourselves, but we're not taking it as far as that guy. We're not taking it as far as this guy either. Look at this guy behind the wheel of a car. He built a bubble around the driver's seat of his car. Now, that is social distancing uh, to the nth degree. You know, we're doing a pretty good job about it around here, but we're not taking it as far as these guys. These guys wanted to play some basketball, and so they put on hazmat suits to go out there and play. We're doing good, but we're not taking it as far as those guys. But I'll tell you, who would have thought that just a month ago, we would be having the kind of conversations that we are having now, making the kind of decisions that we are making right now. Do you remember what you were doing a month ago? I mean, it's kind of hard to think back that far, isn't it? Well, what was I doing a month ago? I got on Facebook and I went back and looked. You know what I was doing one month ago on this very day? I was coaching my son's basketball game in the playoffs. Yeah, this is my son right here. He, he's wearing the blue jersey. He's the one with the black shorts and the black socks. This is what we were doing exactly one month ago. There was no conversations about social distancing a month ago. No concern that I had about my son guarding his opponent. I wasn't concerned that another player's sweat got on my son. I had zero thoughts about high-fiving all the kids on my team. But I tell you, if the last month has taught us anything, it has taught us this. Life can change quickly. Life is unpredictable. Well, if you are like my family, then you have pretty much circled the wagons and you have been staying at home. We are not going out at all, hardly, unless it's just absolutely necessary. And there is nobody coming over to our house I honestly don't remember a time in my life when I have been at home as much as I have been um, here recently. Kirsten and I have both been working from our home. We are worshiping from home. We are doing our grocery shopping online at home. Our two boys are doing school at home. And we even did spring break at home. We were supposed to go to Houston. We canceled that trip. We did spring break at home. And it's not because <clears throat> we are fearful of the coronavirus. No, 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 no. We're not fearful. But we, like many of you, are just trying to be very wise. We're trying to do our part in helping to curve the spread of this outbreak. I am very thankful that our church family has access to technology that allows us to join together uh, for worship like we're doing right now. I am so grateful that we have this technology. I am so grateful that our life groups can gather together through, through a Zoom call and still continue to meet and have their life group. But I know many of us, 
of our life groups are doing just that. This past week, we did something as a family that we never even thought of before. I mean, this is something that uh, when we're trying to think of ways to to stay connected with our church family and think of new ideas and new techniques, there's, there's things that are being born all the time. Well, I'm going to tell you about what we did with my family this week. We got on a Zoom call with my wife's side of the family. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with, with Zoom, it's a free online service that allows multiple people to join um, together via like a video conference. If you have an Apple iPhone and uh, you FaceTime with somebody, think about it like FaceTime but with lots of people at the same time. That, that's what Zoom is. Businesses have been utilizing Zoom for a long time, and uh, now the church is finding out just how valuable of a resource this is. So what we did with, my, with our family is, is we put a laptop at the end of our dining room table where the webcam could see our whole family um, sit down and have dinner. And then my wife's parents, they did the same thing. They set their computer up at their dining room table, and, um, and they're in Houston, Texas. And then my wife's brother and his family, who live in Chicago, Illinois, they did the exact same thing. They set up uh, a camera in front of their dining room table. And then my wife's sister and her family, who lives in Denver, Colorado, they did the same thing. And what we were able to do is we had, with, with this technology, we were all able to sit down in real time, seeing one another, have dinner together and interact with one another. We had never done that before, but I can tell you it was pretty neat. And it was something that it's something that we're going to continue to do uh, as a family. And uh, it's just an example of how uh, this technology is, is helping our family stay together and how uh, it's helping our church stay together. There has never been a time in human history where we have had more tools at our disposal to connect and to help people interact with one another. But I think you'll agree with me in this. No matter how much technology that there is out there, it's just not the same as being together in person. And I think for me, if I'm just being honest, that's the tension for me. That's, that's the rub. I love technology, but I prefer the in-person. Last weekend, we had just finished worshiping together in our living room, and I thought that we had a great online experience last week. I, I really want to commend our entire team for putting that together. It takes a lot of people to pull that off, and I think they just did a phenomenal job. But we had just finished worshiping together, and it was a great experience. But you know what I missed the most? And, and I think I could put words on this after last weekend. I just miss being with the people. I miss being with our church family. You know, God put something in our DNA that makes us long for people. Did you know that? God put something in inside. He's hardwired us to want to be with people. And we see this at the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to creation, God, God created everything. He said it was good. He created man. He said, this is all so good. But then God noticed something, and it says in Genesis chapter 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. What did God see? God saw man's loneliness. And God said, that, that's not good. And so what did he do? God created Eve. And in one swoop, God doubled the earth's population in an instant. 
You know, before the coronavirus outbreak, there was, there was already another pandemic in our land. It's the loneliness pandemic. I have a concern. I don't know if you've thought about this. It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit here lately. I have this concern that this social distancing that we are doing right now to curve one outbreak could possibly cause the loneliness pandemic to explode. You know, with all this technology at our fingertips to connect with one another, people as a whole have never been lonelier. Did you know that it's been estimated that over 40% of us will feel the aching pangs of loneliness at some point in our lives? Man, that is a staggering statistic. If that's true, 40% of us, 40% of those watching this right now have, have felt or will feel those pangs of loneliness at some point in their lives. And I just think about our church as an example. If that statistic um, rings true throughout our church family, then that means that well over 400 people who call new life their home will feel the aches and pangs of loneliness at some point in their lives. I wonder how many of you who are watching this right now are feeling the overwhelming pangs of loneliness right now. I know that for some who are watching this, those pangs were there before the coronavirus. For others, it comes on since the coronavirus. You're experiencing something kind of new, this isolation, this separation from people, and you're trying to process how you even feel about this. For others, the pangs of loneliness, well, it's worse than it's ever been right now. And you know, there are many contributing factors when it comes to loneliness. Doctors from all fields of medicine have worked on this problem. They've been trying to figure out what causes loneliness, how they can solve the loneliness pandemic in our country. Uh, the first time I remember having that aching pain associated with loneliness came when I was in college. It was the strangest thing, and it just, if I'm just being honest, it just kind of snuck up on me. I had just been hired to be the preacher at this small um, church in this rural part of Kansas, and uh, it was during a time when I was a student at Ozark Christian College. I was not that different from a lot of students at Ozark. We had weekend student ministries where we would go preach, and we would minister in these small little communities, and then uh, on the weekends, and we'd come back to campus during the week and we would do our schoolwork. Well, this church that I was serving was about two hours away from Ozark Christian College. And it was not uncommon for me to travel to this town on a Saturday evening and spend the night in the church parsonage. A parsonage is, is just a house that's owned by the church. And a lot of churches have parsonages. And that's where I would, I would stay when I would travel there. But the very first time that I ever did that, I was sitting in the parsonage. And let me just kind of describe uh, what the environment was like. Um, there was no TV. And I know for some people that's, that's really hard to imagine. There, there was no TV. Um, this was long before Wi-Fi. So there was no Wi-Fi in this house. Um, this is prior to the cell phone explosion. I didn't even have a cell phone. 
The parsonage itself, it was old and it was tired and it was falling apart. I remember, the, the, the most that I remember from that house is walking through the living room and, and the floor would sag greatly as I walked across the living room. The floorboards were, were rotting up. And I, I remember having this feeling every time I was in there, you know, I could walk through this room and at any moment I could just fall right through the floor. The furniture in this house was very old. I would say that it was at least tw- it was at least two times my age, and nobody had lived in this house for many many years. It showed it. It felt like it. It was just kind of a, a lonely lonely place. I, the very first night I was there, um, it was one of the loneliest nights of my life. It, it was at the very beginning of this ministry. And it was at a time in my life that I was lacking the confidence that I could even be a preacher. I wrestled with this idea of like, why did I even take this job? What am I doing? Um, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, Secondly, I was two hours from home. Two hours from everything that was familiar. Two hours from my friends. I didn't know this place. And at this, on this particular day, I didn't know anybody in the church yet either. I had just started. I was brand new. I didn't know anybody. I was feeling disconnected from my friends and my family. It was just this overwhelming sense of loneliness that just set in on me. And I had never experienced anything like that before. And, and if I'm just being honest, and I don't mind being honest before you, it was kind of terrifying and it did bring me to tears. I've thought a lot about that night and what I was feeling. And I have thought back, I was like, was I feeling lonely or was I under some kind of spiritual attack that presented itself in the form of loneliness? I'm not sure, but either way, I've never forgotten how that felt. So that parsonage, the one thing that it did have, it had a phone with a landline. And so I picked up that phone and I made a long distance call. Kids, that used to be a thing. Ask your parents about it. It used to be a thing. You had to make a long distance call and you had to pay for it. And I didn't care. I made a long distance call from that parsonage. I called my dad and we had a long talk that night and he helped me through it. You know, I've never been a lonely person. Uh, but I got a taste of what many people live with year after year. And I've been thinking a lot about that during this season of separation, during this season of social distancing. I'm concerned about a good number of folks in our church and a good number of folks in our community who fight loneliness every single day. I'm concerned about those who will experience loneliness for the very first time because of this coronavirus outbreak. And if you've never thought about that, if you've never thought about the people around us that are fighting loneliness every single day, well, then I'm happy to be the one to get to bring that to your attention. You know, the Bible is not silent when it comes to loneliness. And there are people in the Bible that experience great moments of of loneliness. I I could name off a number of them, but I'll, I'll take you to just one guy. David, he was no stranger to loneliness. Which is kind of odd to me that David fought loneliness during his life because he seems to be a guy that was always surrounded by people. Even as a young boy, he came from a large family. He had brothers, he had siblings, you know. He was surrounded by people. He had a big family. As he grew up, he had people drawn to him because he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. As the king, he was surrounded by people. Yet, this is a man 
who knew what it felt like to have those pangs of loneliness in his life. Just listen to what David wrote one time in Psalm 25. He's crying out to God and he says this, turn to me and be gracious. This is something he's asking of God. He says, turn to me and be gracious. Why would he ask God for that thing? He says, for I am lonely and afflicted. This is David. This is the man after God's own heart. And he says, I'm lonely and I'm afflicted. And then he says, relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. I know that some of you who are watching this right now, you absolutely get and fully understand and connect with what David is writing in Psalm 25. There was this time in David's life when he was all alone in a cave. In fact, if you've got your Bibles close by you today, why don't you open your Bibles to the 142nd Psalm. That's Psalm 142. That's where we're going to be spending the next few moments today. Um, If you want to open up your app and you want to tap on the sermon notes icon, um, I've got Psalm 142 in there as well for you to find easily. But Psalm 142, it's this psalm about this time that David was all alone in this cave. Now, let's read it together. It just begins like this. A maskil of David. Now, let me just stop right there because that's kind of confusing. This word maskil, what is that? I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, Bible scholars can't say exactly for sure what that word means. They can pick that word apart. They can pull out root meetings. And if you do that, you, you come up with this idea of insight, Insight um, leads us to this thinking of wisdom and instruction. So Bible scholars have said the maskil of David, it's some kind of wisdom prayer. It's some kind of insight. Um, That word also means skill or skillful. And, And those words also relate to this idea of wisdom. So the best we can tell is that this is some kind of wisdom. This is some kind of insight teaching from David in the form of of prayer. That's what this psalm is. So a maskil of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. This is one of those psalms that kind of clues us in. This is what David's going through. This is where he's at when he is writing this psalm. When he's thinking about these things. This is what was going on in his mind at this moment. Now let's read it together. It says, I cry aloud to the Lord. Now envision this. He's in a cave. He's all alone. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Just right here in the opening verses of this psalm, this is a guy that's in some anguish. This is a guy that's feeling some things, and he's feeling them in a very, very intense way. So how does David find himself in a cave, pouring out his heart to God? You know, what are the things that lead up to this outpouring of, of, of loneliness and helplessness and anxiety. What brought him to this exact moment? Well, for that answer, you're going to have to go back and read the entire book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And I would encourage you to do that at some point. But for now, I'm going to simply summarize a few of the details so that you'll understand how David came to be in that cave and why he is all alone. You see, from the day, from, from the time that David was very young, 
um, God's anointing, God's blessing was on him. This is the same David who you might recall with a sling and a few stones took down the mighty giant Goliath. Ever since that moment, David had been on the rise. He was just a kid when he did it, but he took down the giant. He was a hero to the Israelites and he has been on the rise. And God picked David uh, to be the next king of Israel. The only problem with that is that Israel already had a king. Do you remember that king's name? Many of you do. That was King Saul. As you read 1 Samuel, you'll learn this about King Saul. Saul disobeyed God. God had very specific instructions that he wanted Saul to carry out, and Saul just disregarded him. And he did things that just was so displeasing to God, so much so that God removed his hand of blessing from Saul. And, and God sent a prophet to tell him that. Uh, God's removed himself from you. I don't know how scary that would be. That would just be terrifying. It was terrifying to Saul. And he begs the prophet, no, 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 have God forgive me. But no, it was done. God removed his blessing away from Saul. And he put that anointing on David. He said, I'm giving the throne to somebody else. And that somebody else was this young guy named David who was on the rise in front of people's eyes. And Saul, even though he remained king for quite a while after that, he watched David grow. And there was this jealousy that grew inside of Saul, so much so that he desired to kill David. He was so angry with David, he wanted him to die. And so Saul tried to kill him. And so what's David do? As you read through the book of 1 Samuel, David runs away. He runs for his life because Saul wanted to kill him. And Saul pursues him across the country so that he can do just that, so he can kill him. Well, the Bible says that David fled to this area of Gath. And, and uh, he thought he would be safe there, but there were some people in Gath that recognized him and they took him to the king of Gath and they said, hey king, do you know who this is? This is David. He is the king of Israel. And, and David was terrified for his life. And, and David does something. And if you've never read this or you're not familiar to this, this is gonna, this is gonna kind of creep you out just a little bit. You know what David did in front of the king? He pretended to go crazy. He pretended to be a madman. David would scratch on the walls and on the gates and he would let drool just come down off his face and into his beard, the Bible says. And, and David pretended to be crazy. And so the king of Gath, he looks out at David and he's like, this guy is crazy. Get him out of my presence. I don't want anything to do with this guy. And David escaped by acting crazy. And then you come to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and it says, verse one, David left Gath. You know, just that moment where he was acting super crazy, fearing for his life, he leaves Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Those are the circumstances surrounding the events of David being in that cave all alone. Do you know archaeologists actually know where the cave of Adullam is? They know exactly where this cave, cave is that David was hiding out when he was fleeing from Saul. Um, it's not one of the main attractions when you go to the Holy Land to see all the holy sites. In fact, it's kind of hard to get to. It's off the beaten path. You gotta have somebody who knows where it is. But if you really desire to see this cave and to go inside of it, you can do that if you want to. Here's a picture of the entrance to this cave. 
Um, in this picture, you can see a man coming out of the entrance of the cave. You'll notice that the entrance of the cave, it doesn't look very big, does it? But once you're inside this cave, it opens up and it is quite large. It goes way back into this area. It's very deep, uh, this cave system uh, back in there. Um, eventually, the Bible says 400 men would join David. And believe it or not, there is more than enough room for 400 soldiers to enter into this cave. Now, if you want to even look at it further, you can go online. There's plenty of pictures and plenty of videos that people have taken and post them on the internet of what the inside of this cave was like. But I can tell you, it's a great place to hide. Most Bible scholars agree that Psalm 142 was written about this moment in David's life. David hiding from King Saul, all alone in this very cave, fearing for his life, isolated and uncertain about what lies ahead. And if you ask me, the 142nd Psalm is the perfect passage of scripture for us at this time. Because what it does is it gives us an example of, of, uh, of what David did in a very uncertain time in his life, in a very lonely time in his life, when there were threats all around him and he didn't know what was coming next. He didn't know if it was about to get worse or if it was about to get better. And I think about our situation today and I think you could draw some real parallels. Social distancing and many other factors are causing many people right now to feel isolated. Maybe you feel like you could describe what you're doing, sheltering at home and, and not being around people. You could probably say, I feel like I'm in my own cave right now. Perhaps the only difference between my cave and David's cave is my cave has Netflix and his didn't. I don't know. It's a lonely time for you. If we're being honest, you'd say, if I step outside, it feels like there's threats all around me. If you listen to the way they're talking about the coronavirus and how contagious it is, you're wondering, man, if I even step outside, am I going to get this? There's danger all around us. That's what it feels like anyway. Probably all wondering, how much worse is this going to get? When is it going to peak? When is it going to get better? When do I get to go back to life like it used to be? Normal. I believe that the 142nd Psalm is a real help to us today as we navigate these strange, these potentially lonely times. So Psalm 142, it's David's prayer in a lonely cave. So what's the first thing that David did? If you like you got your Bible in front of you, look, look down at your Bible. What's the first thing he did? He cries out to God in complete honesty. In fact, if you're taking notes, uh, why don't you write this down or type this into the notes in the app. David was honest before God. David was honest before God. His fear, his loneliness, everything that he was feeling, he just takes it straight to God. Let's go back and look at it again. Look at verse one. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell him my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. What seems obvious is that David is utterly overwhelmed by his circumstances. So what does he do in that overwhelming situation? 
He, he is just honest before God about it. Right there in that cave, he pours it all out there right in front of God. And it doesn't look like this is one of those Psalms where he is holding anything back. He just puts it out there. I think David has some anger in him. That's what I read. As I read this whole Psalm, I hear some anger coming out of him. Not anger towards God. I don't read that at all. But anger about his situation. Anger about the mess that he finds himself in. Verse two says, I pour out before him my complaint. I tell you, most complaints are born out of something that's aggravating, something that fills us with anger. You know, before him, I'm gonna tell God all of my trouble. And I have a question for you today. When was the last time that you really poured it all out there before God in prayer? When was the last time you did that? I mean, you were just honest. You were bold. You were blunt before God. You laid out there your anger. You laid out there your disgust. You laid out there um, your frustrations about what's happening in life. You laid out there all of your troubles before God. And if you've never done that, then you probably should because that's exactly how God wants his children to approach him, humble and honest about what's happening in our life. And you know, I got a little secret for you. God already knows how you feel. God already knows every honest thing you're thinking, whether you verbalize that to him or not. Because he already knows, you might as well just take that next step and be completely bold and humble and honest. Pour it all out there for God, because that's what David is looking. Look, what, look, what, look at everything he lays out before God. Look at the very next verse. Verse three, in the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I wonder how many of you right now are reading these words and you're like, that's how I feel. Now, David is speaking for me right now because I totally relate to this because this is how I feel too. Have you told God about it? Have you laid all this before God? And David, that's what he's doing. He's just being real. He's just being real with his feelings. He's admitting, God, I feel trapped. What does he say? In my path, people have put snares in front of me. Snares are traps. David's like, they're trying to trap me. They're trying to trick me. This is a man right now that sees like, like no escape. He doesn't know how he's gonna get out of this. This is also a man that feels like he is completely alone. He feels like he's been completely abandoned. Look at verse four. What does he say? He said, nobody is at my right hand. What in the world does he mean by this? Nobody is at my right hand. You gotta understand, David's a fighter, David's a soldier. David's no stranger to battles and war. And, and, and in David's world, the man to your right, he is your defender. He is your brother in arms. This is a man. He's got your right side covered. As long as that man is there, you know that you're good because he is gonna protect you from anything that's coming to your right side. And David's like, God, I got nobody to my right. Nobody cares for me. There's no safe place for me. And what I appreciate about this psalm is that David holds nothing back. He pours it all out there before God. He's completely honest about all of his troubles. 
Can I tell you why I believe that turning to God in prayer and being completely honest before him is the best thing that you and I could ever do? Especially right now with what we're dealing with. I think it's the best thing that we could do because coming clean before God and being honest before him, it opens up some room in your heart and it opens up some room in your mind to cultivate a confident hope moving forward. I'm gonna explain a little bit more about that, but that's what I see happening as we get a little bit deeper down into this psalm. If you're still taking notes, why don't you write this down? David developed a confident hope. Even in all this anguish and all this despair, it led to something. This honesty before God led to some hope. Look at what David prays next. Look at verse five. He says, I cry out to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Do you see right before your very eyes in this psalm, David's despair started to transition into what I'm calling a confident hope. He's like saying, I got nobody, God. I'm just telling you how I feel. I got nobody. But even in saying that, I am reminded that I got you. It's almost like David had to offload that, that negative feeling so that he could download the truth that no, I don't have anybody, but, but I still have you. He says, you are my refuge. I'm confident, God, that you are gonna show up through this. I can't exactly tell you why, so perhaps this falls into my opinion. But there's just something about being honest before God that helps you develop a confident hope and a better outlook going forward. I think honesty before God precedes this confident hope. Not only that, but I believe that honesty before God, well, I think it, it, it may also motivate God to move into some form of action. You know, the Bible says that God hears all of our prayers, but I think being honest before God, you know what that allows us to do? It helps us, it allows us, it helps us to articulate what we are asking God to do. It did for David. Look what he says next. Look at verse six. He says, listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison. David's honesty helped him really articulate three requests of God, three things he wanted God to move on. The very first one was, God, listen to my cry. So, so David is pouring this out and his hope, what he's requesting of God was this, just listen to me, please. And God did. What else? He says, God, I need you to rescue me. See, David being completely honest, pouring it all out there, it helped him articulate. What do I want God to do? I want God to rescue me. What else did he want God to do? He said, God, set me free from my prison. Now, now David wasn't in an actual prison right here. It was more of an emotion. It was a feeling. He's like, I feel like I'm in prison and I need, Lord, for you to come and get me out of here. So being completely honest before God, it allowed him to articulate exactly what he was wanting God to do. You see, there's these times where we feel, I just feel this and I'm, I'm lonely and, I, and I, I'm mad and I'm, I'm trying to express, but, but you never take that stuff to God. When you do, you'll find that there's some articulation of 
of things you actually are asking of God rather than just stewing about it and thinking on it and dwelling on it and having no path forward. You, are, you pour out to God, you're going to find that these specific requests will come out. So he was honest before God and that, that uh, caused David to develop some confident hope. And there's this other thing that I see. If you're still taking notes, why don't you write this down? David was able to articulate his preferred future. Even in the middle of this despair, David was able to think through, vision cast just a little bit about what he wanted God to do and how that would all look into the future. And I I wonder, have you ever gone through that process? God, I'm being honest before you. This is what I want you to do because my desired outcome looks like this. Have you ever had a prayer that dealt with those things? God, I want it to look like this. Look at verse seven. He says, set me free from my prison that I may, what, what does he want? He goes, I want to praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So you look at the culmination of this time in the cave. David prayed and hoped that it would lead to two things. The first thing was, I want everybody to praise your name. I want to praise your name. David said, I want all of this to come back to a season and a moment where all I'm doing is praising you and worshiping you. That's what David's preferred future looked like. And it took this honest, bold, humble prayer to move him through this process of this is what I'm going through. This is the hope that I have in you. And this is how I want this thing to turn out. He says, I want to praise you. He also says, I want everybody. I want the righteous. He's meaning the children of Israel at this point in history. I want all of them to gather around me as a testimony of your goodness. He's like, God, I want you to use my life. And I want people to look at my life and to see my story and to look at what you did in my life and let that be a good testimony to how great you are. Boy, what an incredible vision, a a preferred future that he was able to articulate because he was honest before God. Lord, I want this to come out a certain way. And when was the last time you asked God for something like that? God, this is how I see it. And man, if it's in your will, can it be so? Friends, these are strange days. That's what I just keep talking about lately. These are strange days. If you are feeling lonely, or isolated, if you're feeling lost, desperate, confused, trapped, you fill in the blank with the emotion you might be feeling. Can I challenge you to do exactly what David did? David was honest before God. He laid it all out there humbly before him. What did David say? God, I'm surrounded. God, I'm in trouble. There's traps all around me. I have no safe place. Nobody is watching over of me. Getting that out, I believe, opened him up. I believe that opened his heart and his mind up to start to develop and cultivate some confident hope. Because after he poured it out, what happened? He says, you are my refuge. I got nobody, but you are are my refuge. Do you hear the confident hope starting to come out of him? You are my safe place. You are my portion. In other words, he's saying, you are enough. That's what he means when he says, you are my portion. You are enough. Do you hear this confident hope starting to build out of him? 
And then those things put David in a position to articulate what his preferred future is. This is what I want, God. I want to praise your name, and I want everybody to testify to your goodness. Friends, regardless of what happens, God is still on his throne. Amen? Regardless of what happens, God still loves you. And regardless of what happens, God is still our Savior.